Father, I just ask tonight that you would speak to us through your word. How exciting it is to be in it. Lord, it is living and active. It's alive. Lord Jesus, when you were walking uh, this earth, you were admonishing people, looked in the prophets and the Psalms, all the word of God that relates to you. Every single page in the word of God has you in it. And our privilege and our duty is to find you there. And when we do it, it is living and active. It comes alive. And Father, I pray tonight as we go through the book of Joel, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Give us understanding, right understanding, that we can rightly divide the word of truth, that we can stand on certainty and know we know where we're going. We know the way the world's going. There is no time for fear. And yet you say that men, unconverted men, one of the signs of the last times that that heart of men would be failing for fear. But yet you say that for the Christian, there is no fear for judgment casts out all fear. And your, our judgment fell upon <clears throat> you. And I just ask tonight that you would admonish us and nourish us in your word. And ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Let me run down real quick. Uh, <clears throat> this is exciting. Wow. And we get this from the book of Joel, as we, we overlap his prophecies all through the Word of God. You know, like I said, in the early 18, or excuse me, the early 800s B.C., roughly about 835, 840, is when Joel's prophecy breaks on the scene. And in Israel's history is what he's concerned about. We see that in 722 B.C. or thereabouts, Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians, but in the mercy of God, not annihilated. We see in 586 B.C. or thereabout, Judah was destroyed but not annihilated by the Babylonians. And we also see in, in 536 B.C. or thereabout that Judah was restored to the land. Ezra and Nehemiah have a lot to say about that. Very interesting how God is constantly allowing his remnant to return to the land. But then we have the church age. We go through the, the uh, prophets to Malachi. Then we have the 400 or so silent years, and then all of a sudden Messiah breaks on the scene, the long-awaited Messiah. Israel rejects their Messiah. Jerusalem in 70 AD is destroyed. The Jews are dispersed to every corner of the globe, fulfilling many prophecies. Uh, the noted one is in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God is fulfilling his word. And then we start seeing miraculous things happen, how the church age has begun, and God, just like uh, Peter said in, in that Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, that first side, ex excuse me, it was James was saying this, first side, God has set aside his program of Israel, and he's allowing the Gentiles to come, and he's fulfilling the, the Gentiles. And when that's fulfilled, he's going to start his program with Israel again. Thus, he is starting to see a little bit of that happening. We see the Jews returning back to the land of Israel, May 14, 1948. A big, huge event, which it is no surprise to anybody. It shouldn't be surprised, any surprise to you at all how people are saying, well, wait a minute, that's really not, that's really not their land anymore. That's, they're, they're in there illegally. We heard all these type of things. Um, well, if people would read their Bibles and know what the prophet said, it's exactly what God was saying was doing, because when he is nearing the time when not only he will come back for you and I, but his return to earth, the Jews must be in their land. 
That's the part of the prophetic picture we see that Joel's framework sets in. Daniel talks about very specifically. And by the way, they're returning. uh, I just heard another report about the Jews in France. They're really urging them to get out, and they're getting out. Uh, Jews all over the place are returning at a precedent rate to the land of Israel. Is that any coincidence? Absolutely not. So now where are we in the the timetable of events? We have no prophetic events, as I see it in the Word of God, and I'm not alone, that has to happen before Christ comes back in the air to receive his own. Nothing. It's exciting. But we see the events starting to happen because we see Daniel's structure of, of the four, you know, the, the, the structure of the man, the, the empires and so forth. We see the nation of Israel reborn. We see Christ bringing his, his people back to the land. The next thing that happens, we get raptured or the catching away of the saints. A little bit of time period in there, some people say, I don't know, it could be, it's not very long, maybe seven years, maybe not, I don't know, until the tribulation starts, could be an interval of time. But we do know that the when Jesus comes back in the air to, to receive his own to himself, something amazing is going to happen. We have a seven-year period, a, a seven years of weeks that Daniel talks about, 69 of them have already passed. When we got that 70th year broken into three and a half years, increments each we have the antichrist coming on on the scene and making peace with israel we see the 144,000 jews out of revelation chapter 7 that are from 12 tribes of israel okay there's no lost tribes there's no lost any 12,000 of them from each tribe then we see at the end of this first three and a half years called the tribulation period, that, that the seal judgments of uh, Revelation chapter 6 starting to unfold. The seventh seal is, is, sound, is, is open, and there are seven trumpets that are given to seven angels. This, in the time period of prophetic writing, starts the, the second three and a half years called the time of Jacob's trouble. This time is when not only Israel will start to see the peace treaties broken, Israel will start to see persecution. We have the trumpet judgments of Revelations chapter 8 and 11. Then we have the bold judgments pouring out, very severe. We see the Antichrist ruling supremely, even in the midst of this, as he is, the veil has gone off. He has revealed his, his absolute evilness. We see this from Daniel chapter 11, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, Revelation chapter 13, and so forth. But in the middle of this, what breaks the first three and a half years of the tribulation to the second three and a half years? Very, very important. It's called the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, affirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ. In the middle of this this three-and-a-half-year period that that is peace that Israel is supposedly uh, gotten from this, this antichrist, this man of lawlessness, he will go in the middle of that three and a half years that we've talked about, and he will set himself up as to be worshipped as God. He will desecrate the, the newly uh, set up temple. 
He will desecrate it by setting himself in there and admonishing himself as God. And that is when the last three and a half years or the time of Jacob's trouble begins. So you see, when we look at, and the prophet Jeremiah was the one that termed the time of Jacob's trouble. It's an unprecedented time of not only persecution for the Jews, but setting up of the judgments of the nations. Second coming of Christ after the last three and a half years. We have Armageddon, we're talking about tonight. What is Armageddon? How does, this, how does it come about? Why does it come about? You know, we have so many movies now that have Armageddon in the title, what have you. Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the seven-year period. And we must understand that as we were going through Joel, we see in the first chapter of Joel, the remember the invasion of the locusts and all that, and, and he may, says an amazing thing. He says, the land before them was like the Garden of Eden, but after these amazing locusts went through, the land behind them was desolate. That is, a, is picturesque of not only Armageddon, but what we're going to see here in a little bit, the invasion, uh, the terrible persecution of the Jews. One thing that when Jesus comes back, and you read about that in numerous places, but Revelation 19 is the most pointed, we will be coming back with him. He will come back and he will do a number of things, but one of the most amazing things is not only setting up his kingdom, which he's doing in fulfillment of prophecy on the throne of his father David, which is a fulfillment of prophecy, he is going to take this one who has controlled the Antichrist, one who has empowered the beast and so forth, Satan, and he will put him in the bottomless pit. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. You'll find that in Revelation 20. The millennial comes in. What happens when he is bound? What happens when God comes back? We'll read Jesus is coming in Zechariah chapter 12. They're all astonished that they realize that this is the one that we pierced. This is our Messiah. He's going to come back and he's going to chastise and cleanse Israel. Save them from annihilation. Chastise them and cleanse them. We see that in Zechariah 13 and so forth. He's going to bring them under the rod of judgment. He's going to cleanse them and bring them into his kingdom. Only a third of them. Only a third. Two-thirds of Israel is wiped out. That's how intense this persecution is. And when he comes back, he's going to come back to the wonderment of the whole world. That's where Paul says all Israel will be saved. All spiritual Israel, all the remnant of Israel will be saved. And you know what's interesting? Uh, you can follow the remnant of Israel all the way through the prophets. Then we see that the judgments of the nations. We also can read about the king of blessings. And I want to say one thing real quick. Um, because I've had a few questions uh, by people, in fact, people that have actually listened to the, to the Internet. What about this Gog and Magog thing of Ezekiel 38-39? Well, I think that the Bible clearly states that this invasion, I believe, will happen not at Armageddon, it might be preparatory for it, 
But I believe that this invasion will be set up by God, and I believe that it will happen around the middle of the tribulation period. Uh, why do I say that? Well, because Israel is under a severe persecution. Israel has, even now, surrounded by enemies like never before. We've talked about that. Um, we have, you know, Iraq, Iran, Jordan, uh, to the south, we have Egypt. We have to the north, we have Lebanon. We have Russia, who's always been a major persecutor of the Jews. But all these surrounding nations we see in Psalm 83 and so forth, for the first time in history, they're there with one consent. There's always been persecution of the Jews. There's always been hatred of the Jews. But now we have not only hatred surrounding that land of Israel, but we also have it surrounded with one consent, just like, just like uh, in Psalm 83. Listen to this. I'm just going to read real quick and just answer this, and then we'll get going. I think it's interesting because a lot of people, I've read so many commentators that are really kind of divided on this. Because if you read Ezekiel chapter 30 and 39, this battle, it's, it, it is a tremendous uh, part of the Word of God, part of prophecy. Is this Armageddon? I don't think so. It could be preparatory to it. Because remember, in this seven-year period of time, which is not much time, we have in, in <coughs> false peace Israel. Does that mean all the other countries and nations of the world are at peace? No. No. This man is, is lining up a political, not only a political, but a military alliance to keep Israel <coughs> safe. But he says an amazing thing about this prophecy. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, and the prince of Rosh, Mihash, and Tubal, and prophesy against them. And all commentators really kind of agree that this is, is up in the northern uh, Baltic region of Europe, if you will, Russia obviously heading this, this mass here. And say, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Gog, prince of Rosh, Mihash, and Tubal. I will turn you around. I will turn you around, and I will put hooks in your jaws, and I will lead you out with all your army, horses, and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, and a great army with buckler, sword, shields, and all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all its troops, the house of Tegram, and they're from the far north and all its troops, many people are with you. This is not a small campaign. Okay. The Battle of Armageddon is not a battle, per se, it's a campaign. It's the war to end all wars. This is a campaign. God specifically, and we see it now. We see the persecution, of not only the Jews, but the alignment of, of Russia with Iran. We see the... Uh, <laughs> if you realize what's going on, the Cold War, I don't believe, has ended. Not a military war, a war of ideology, if you will. Again, but he says, prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your companies that are gathered about you and be on guard, for after many days you will be visited, and in the latter days you will be coming to the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which has long been desolate, and they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. You will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many people with you. 
And he goes on to say, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north. You and many people with you and all of them riding on horses, a great army and a mighty army. You will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud and cover the land. It will be in the latter days. And that frame, latter days, is very interesting. That is solely in the prophets concerned with Israel. And we will see that. So you'll come upon them in the latter days and I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. Who is hallowed in the eyes of Pharaoh in Egypt? God was. God said, I raised him up and I gave him power so that I will be known. God is in complete control. Thus says the Lord God of you, he of whom was spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I should bring you against them. And it goes on. As we read about, as we read in Hosea and Daniel and the prophecies there, we see that, that the Antichrist, this man of sin, will be marching south. And I believe that when he marches south, the Bible says when he's down there dealing with the king of the south, there's going to be disruption on the northern part of, of, of Israel, up above Israel. And he comes back and he takes care of that military campaign. He wipes out a certain amount, solidifies that false peace with Israel. And we also read in the 39th chapter of, of the desecration that God is going to cause on those people. So this is a, not a time that anybody wants to be in. This is a time that the world is looking at even now and scratching their heads. What, what's going to happen? What are we, what's going to go on? A nuclear capability is everywhere in the world. Is the world going to end by nuclear holocaust? Well, uh, it's not going to end by nuclear holocaust, but God may use that. I don't know. But one thing we do know is, is just like David Levy has said, and I'll start my study tonight with this. The world's nations today are on a direct collision course that will ultimately end in the Battle of Armageddon. In detail, the prophet Joel explains the destiny of these nations as they relate to Israel in the coming of the day of the Lord. Wow. Very interesting. You know, this world is absolutely full of hatred. We see the hatred manifested in its, in its spiritual form when they beat and they absolutely, uh, well, they had their way with the Lord Jesus Christ when they were beating him and whipping him and pulling out his beard and spitting upon him. And, um, as we've said a lot, the Bible uses language, emphatic language, uh, and I break it down this way because I'm very simple. Uh, if, again, like we've talked about, if you knew Christ before the cross, you would not recognize him on the cross. But that was hatred. And that's what Armageddon is. It's, it's hatred heating up against nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It's absolutely white-hot hatred against the Jews, but ultimately it's hatred against God himself. And that's why we read in the Word of God that all these armies, you know, after they're, they're feuding and, and myriads of people, uh, 
you look in a good concordance, the, the fact of the term blood, uh, it's going to be a very bloody time uh, like the world has never seen. In fact, in the, in the Valley of Megiddo, when, the, when, the, when it's all over, he said that the rivers of blood will run up to the heights of, of the horses' bridles. It will be terrible devastation. And yet we see that the armies of this world turn against and fight against Christ. We're back in Psalm 2. You know, kings of the earth laughed and they say, they want to abase the anointed one. And what does the God said? In the heavens he shall laugh. Pompous men. Wow. I love the Bible. There is nothing like it. Israel. I think that if we uh, spent too long on here, it's, it's very easy to get lost in um, what's going to happen next. How's this going to unfold? Well, I think last week we ended up somewhere in the 28th verse of chapter 2. Does Israel, does God care about Israel? You know, I mean, really, does God care? He cares so much about Israel. I'll just tell you one scripture, Isaiah 49, 16. God says, see, I've inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Literally, I have carved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. That is one of over 300 direct acts of affirmation and love and encouragement to his people. Does God love Israel? Yes. Paul even made the statement. Think about this one. He said, I would rather go into perdition just to save one of my kinsmen. God, Paul is pounding the heart of Christ at that point. That's love. Could I, could I be willing to suffer the eternal torment of hell so somebody else could be saved? Ask that question to yourself. That's love. And God is continually uh, grieving over his people. Deliverance, I think, is, is the last thing that I really wanted to look at um, as we go through this, this book of Joel. Not all is dismal. Um, yes, they have their greatest persecution yet to come, but they also have their greatest exaltation yet to come. And that is, that's amazing. He says that after the destruction of these locusts, remember last week we, we talked about, if you go back in the uh, 10th and 11th verse of chapter 2, and we see how, how God is, is, is describing that the sun and the moon will grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness. Verse 11, the Lord gives voice before his army and, and so forth. We can read that in chapter 24 of Matthew. Um, by the Lord himself and so on. But in the book of Joel, what's interesting about him too is you also, in the beginning of the writing prophets, you get to understand how we must look at the prophets or we get very, very confused because the prophets will, will talk about a devastation or a, an act of God that's happening with Jews at the present time or the very near future time, but mostly they will have a far-reaching uh, fulfillment of that prophecy. Hence, the day of the Lord is like locusts, and we'll get into that a little bit. So, we're up to that point. 
Remember we talked last week in chapter, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 18 about repentance. And I won't sit much on repentance, but we see a little hint of what repenting really is. In chapter in verse 12, Now therefore, there says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart, verse 13, and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, and he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, great of kindness. Do you realize the word in there that he uses twice is returning? Turn. Repentance is turning. You know, so many times people say, well, if you really meant it, if you're really sorry, you wouldn't do that again. If you're living life of sin, as Israel was, a debauchery, and they were going in a direction of the other nations, God is continually saying, repent. And we know by other things in the Word, you can say, I repent all day long. But repenting comes from the heart. And we went over that, and that's, that's where we're at now. And then starting in verse 18, where I really want to start tonight real quickly, go through this, God promises deliverance to Israel if they repent. And you know what Jesus Christ offers eternal life, he offers forgiveness of sins, and he will give that freely to the one that from their heart repents and receives Christ as their Savior, turns from their sin and receives Christ as their Savior. He promises eternal life. We've all that have been in Christ for a while have seen people that, that have made professions, but that's what it is. Talk is cheap. Look at verse 18, chapter 2. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. He wants repentance. Verse 19, the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you reproach among the nations, but I will move far from you the northern army. I believe they're talking about the Assyrian army at this point. And will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back towards the western sea. The stench will come up and his foul order will rise because he has done monstrous things. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up and the trees bear its fruit. The fig tree, the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat. The vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. Verse 25, so I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. That's our God. People say, well, I'm, you know, I'm 65, I'm 70 years old. It's too late for me. I live my life in debauchery. I live my life in sin. It's too late for me. It is never too late. Your 70 years of debauchery living, living to eternity and righteousness and enjoying the presence of God is nothing. Paul says this life is like a moment. It's a twinkling in an eye. These momentary griefs that we bear are nothing in the light of eternity. And God is placing before Israel, you don't understand. I sent the prophets to you rising up early every day telling you these things. Your greatest exaltation to deliverance is coming, but I need you to repent. I need you to believe that I am He. 
That's exactly what God told it, Moses. As Moses, can you imagine? Moses said, I couldn't speak very well. I can relate to that. God says, I'm going to send you over there. Well, you know, I don't understand this. You just tell them that I am sent me to you. I am that I am. Constantly God is telling his people, turn to me. You turn to me, I will be the rejoicing of your heart. I will return everything to you that the locusts have eaten. I will take away those wasted, wasted years, and I will fill them with myself. Don't you feel that way sometimes? Man, I wasted so much of my life doing stupid things, being stupid. Let's, let's put it bluntly. Doing things I know I shouldn't have done, even as a Christian. Riding the fence for years and whatever. You know, you feel that those years are wasted. They are wasted if you don't repent. That's what God's saying here. They're wasted if you don't repent. But if you do, if you do repent and you come to me, my mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. That's when your years aren't wasted, is when you repent and come to Jesus Christ. He restores those years, and that's what he's doing here. He says, my people, I love you. Judgment is coming, and that is my last recourse. God's a God of judgment, but God is also, as we've talked about so many times, a God of mercy. And he's saying, turn to me. I will restore all those devastating years. Read about it. Wow. You know, like I said, all the land before us was like the Garden of Eden, and God came in in judgment, and all these terrible plagues of locusts, and behind me is desolation. God can restore it all. If we would just, he wants your heart. He doesn't want your garments. He doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. Then those other things flow. That's the Christian life. He doesn't want your good works. Your good works flow from the cross. Your heart brought you to the cross. His conviction of sin and your heartfelt repentance and the rending of your heart, the contrite spirit, brought you to the cross. And then your good works flow. That's what glorifies God, not religion. We see that here so often. How do we know about repentance? We see a lot in the prophets now. God deals with Israel. These are promises, folks, that... that the Israel is going to be exalted. The nations that have persecuted her, the worst, will go through horrible judgment. And you and I will be watching that. I am, you know, I, I think about some of these people that have that replacement theology. What are they going to, they are going to be amazed when they see God judge his people, cleanse his people, chastise his people, and exalt his people, the very ones who they said, they're, they're no more. They're done. You know? They blew it. Can't you see that runs a close second to the attitude of, yeah, you can lose your salvation if you go too far. God's going to say, that's it. Can you go farther than Israel? We see over and over and over and over again. Come to me. I love that verse. I have seen it and heard it so many times used out of context. I'm going to restore the years of the locusts, you know. But that's what God does to a repentant individual or a repentant nation. 
the crawling locust, verse 25, the middle, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty, be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt, dealt wonderfully or wondrously with you. Wow. And my people shall never be put to shame. That's a promise. Never be put to shame. Look at verse 27. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. Wait a minute. That's exactly what Isaiah says. Isaiah 43, 44, 45, and 46. Those chapters are wonderful chapters that, are, that, are, that God is saying, you are my witnesses, as said the Lord. There is none other. I am it. I am he. And besides me, there is no Savior. God is affirming the fact that when, he's, when we understand how he's faithful and we turn to repentances, guess whose witnesses we are? Not the Jehovah's Witnesses, the King of Kings' Witnesses. And that's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are to be ambassadors for Christ. Repentance is the key. Promise of the Spirit, wow. This is where we get into some wonderful things. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward, of last, these last days, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Let me read you something back from Hosea chapter 3. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, but the first five verses, listen to this. Then the Lord said to me, go love again a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Who looked to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I brought her, I bought her, excuse me, I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be towards you. Listen to this. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. In the latter days. So what is this in verse, back in verse 28? And I, it will come to pass afterwards. You know, this is what Moses cried out for in Numbers chapter 11. He said, then Moses said to him, are you zealous for my sake? This is God is speaking to Moses. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Wow. He's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old man shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, you know where I'm going now. Keep your thumb there and go to Acts chapter 2. This is absolutely wonderful. Now remember, when Peter was speaking this, 
He was speaking, and by the way, in that day, 3,000 people were saved. Now, the Bible says that all that were appointed to salvation, uh, they received it. Now, Peter is up there speaking to people, crowds from all over the place. Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verse 16. Actually, let's go before it. Let's go over to chapter 8. How is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? And he starts telling about all the people. Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, verse 10, Pyrian, and, and so forth, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, verse 11, you know, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongue, tongues, the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed, verse 2. They were all perplexed, saying one to the other, what could this mean? But of course, others were mocking. Verse 14, Peter, Peter standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said, The men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Verse 15, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, as, as he was speaking, it must have cut some Jews, right to the heart, that knew the Old Testament, that knew the writings, that knew the prophets. And he, he goes on to say, verse 17, and it should come to pass, in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 18, and on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Now let's suspend that before we go to 19. That happened in, in, at, the, at Pentecost, but it's also a precursor of what's going to happen. We'll find that as we go through the prophets, what's going to happen. In, when Jesus comes back, and he, it says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that he's going to pour forth the spirit of supplication on the house of David. He's going to pour forth, and they are going to cling to him as their God, and he is their God, and they will be his people. It is absolutely imperative that we know what time we're at. When are the prophets talking about? And he tells you right here, and the key to this is the last days. The last days. What's going to come afterward? The last days. All through the prophets. Wow. But let's go on. I love this. Remember how I said that Jesus is in every page of the Bible? All prophecy leads to him, whether it's over his people or as himself. That in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus, remember, is a spirit of prophecy. Let's read on in Acts chapter 2. I will show wonders in heaven above and in the signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor, and smoke. We'll get back to, to, to this part of the prophecy in a bit. The sun will be turned into darkness, verse 20, and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. We have a time here, a very specific time, not only before the coming of the day of the Lord, but the Lord himself. Let's read on, look at verse 21. And it shall come pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Look at verse 22. And he turns and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested by God to you on miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, and as yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have by lawless hands have crucified and put to death whom God had raised from the dead. A wonderful prophecy always leading to Messiah because it's the Messiah that saves Israel. It's the Messiah that's faithful to his people. It's the Messiah that fulfills all the prophetic. You know, you go, we go back to Genesis 17 to Abraham. God promised Abraham not only the land, but he promised that through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it just goes from there. You know, I think a lot of times when we read that prophecy, uh, or I should say that prophetic utterance that Peter said at the day of Pentecost, we always want to end when he ends that prophecy. But then as he ends it, he says, but you men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, and it's, it's, it's just a wonderment how that happens. I love the fact that for those that are seriously want to see Christ in the Bible, he will open up your eyes. Back in Joel chapter 2, look at verse 30. Then he from this prophecy that in part was fulfilled when Peter uttered it at Pentecost, he, the prophet Joel shoots into the future to the day of the Lord. Listen to these words, verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Wow. Blood, fire, and pillars of smoke. Verse 31, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now I want to look real quick <laughs> to tie this all together. I want to turn, keep your finger thumb there, turn back to Matthew uh, chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, start at probably, you know, Probably verse 27. Read down at verse 30. Matthew 24, 7. Remember, remember what we what we left off at, that it shall come to pass, or excuse me, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before. This is important, before the coming of the great and awesome day of God. That was in Joel. Go to Matthew. What does Jesus say? Look at verse 27 of chapter 24. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall will be the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, is his coming going to be global? Absolutely. The whole world will know that he's coming. This is not the rapture. This is not the catching away of the saints. This is when he comes in his glory. We know this by context. We know this by the prophets. We must stand fast on this. You know, I remember, uh, as a side note, back to, I think it was in 19, uh, I can't remember, 84, 85, something like that, uh, my, all my family was still in Los Angeles. Los Angeles Times, I've told you about this before, some of you might have remembered this, had a big front page article, The Christ is here now. Is that what the Bible says? No. 
Because the preceding verses say, if they say that he's in the desert, don't go after them. If he's over there, don't go after them. See, people don't know the word of God. And they get so messed up. Jesus, we, in fact, for, for believers, we will be with him by this time. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened and the moon will give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We folks are in Revelation 19 right now. When heaven is open and the Lord Jesus Christ victorious is coming back in flaming fire surrounded by innumerable angels and what else is he surrounded by? You and I. Wow. Just as the prophets have said, in the latter days, after those times, after the tribulation, then Jesus is coming back. <clears throat> wow. That's amazing stuff. Back in Joel chapter 2, look at verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our God is so merciful. In the midst of, of judgment, in the midst of saying this is what's going to happen in the prophets, he's still pleading. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. He uses the same quote. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? The second part of this verse is really interesting too. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Isaiah and Isaiah 1.9 says this, except the Lord of hosts has left us a very small remnant, a third of Israel will be saved. Remember, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. That's in Isaiah. Listen to what Zechariah says in Zechariah 13.9. And I will bring a third part of Israel through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried, and they shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, This is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. The timetable has been so uniquely set in the prophetic the writing of the Lord, all we have to do is, 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 is come and seek it out. And he promises to give us understanding. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives liberally and without reproach. The remnant. God right now is angry with the nations. And 
One of the reasons why he's angry with the nations is they're toiling with his people. And yet he is using some of the nations as a chastisement tool for that. God is so wonderful. Look at, look at chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, that wonderful verse about Israel. You know, I must, I must be a little bit, uh, I must have missed. Do they have Bibles that are, called, that are made like Swiss cheese? Is there some Bibles that have whole uh, prophetic utterances taken out so some of these people can go, I don't see Israel in any of these things. Where are they? They're gone. That's a form of pride and arrogancy, which God will have none of. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 11 regarding chapter 3, verse 1. He says, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And what does Jeremiah say? That the last half of the great tribulation is called the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble. Paul knew that. You know what's amazing to me? Is that if you read the writings of Paul, he'll, he'll say that when I was a religious person, this is Jeff Grant paraphrase, when I was a religious person, I was blind to spiritual content of the Word of God. But now that I was captivated and caught by Christ, and I'm a new man, I'm not Saul of Tarsus anymore, I'm the Apostle Paul. God has opened up the Scriptures to me, and He has driven me into a land and fed me these wonderful graces and understanding, and I wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. It's not only a place of Israel and the program of God, it's the place of the church in the, this dispensation. We are not dividing the word of truth. Dispensationalism, people say, is gone. It simply means the times of the dealings that God has in humanity. It's programs that God has that he doesn't sleep or slumber. He didn't forget about anything. He's got everything under complete control. For verses 2 through 8, we have the judgment of the nations. Let's go quickly. Why is God angry? Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. And I will gather all nations. Now people say, well, is American prophecy. I, you know what? I don't know. I don't see the word America in the Bible. But I see the word all nations. Now, if, if, if we haven't been melted into a federation, which I think we probably will be, but that means all nations. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, if you remember, this is where Ammon and Moab and Edom were defeated when they came against King Jehoshaphat. Probably in the general area between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea and around in there. Probably maybe even preparatory uh, to the, the, you know, the, the Armageddon um, is in the Valley of Megiddo. You know, we read what's interesting, too, in this valley that we're talking about, that, that this quote that I have from uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, which, which I've, you've heard me say several times. But in the same valley is where Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites in Judges 4 and 5. Remember that story? Gideon defeated the Midianites in Judges 7. Look some of these up. Napoleon Bonaparte said, uh, quote, of this valley, this is a natural Battlefield. If there is any place on earth that is fit for battle, this is it. And that guy knew war. 
King Jehoshaphat, probably between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, somewhere in there, you know. But again, this is that same valley. But what Armageddon will be, real quick, as a side note, we have the River Kishon, which is the river that that flooded the valley when when uh, Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites, and that's that's a really interesting story. What happened is is when the chariots uh, of iron came in, uh, it started a downpour, and their the chariots basically got stuck in the mud, and you know they were killed. And of course, we you know the story um, from there. But this flowing river, that's in the northern part, probably just south, maybe in just south, just a tad of Galilee, maybe in that northern part, the Golan Heights and the whole shot. It's going down through the Valley of Megiddo, down south. Then you got into Samaria. Then, then it goes down, and you have Jerusalem, and it goes down farther than that. You have Judea, and you have Moab on the south part of the Dead Sea. And all. The, the campaign of Armageddon is going to be about 180 square miles of, of nothing but battlefield and havoc. So God is angry at the nations. And he's not going to allow his word to be desecrated. He's not going to allow his people to be messed with. He says, I will gather all nations, verse 2, chapter 3, and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. I will plead with them there. And it's not a pleading like, oh, please. It's a pleading of disastrous judgment and a day of reckoning. On account of what? My people. My people are only used of the spiritual remnant of the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can trace that all the way through the Word of God as well. He's going to enter into judgment on account of them. That's funny. They're not there and they're of no account. What's he going to enter account of judgment with them for? On account of my people. Look, look at the vernacular of this language here. My heritage, Israel. Well, we're told in the book of Ephesians that we have an inheritance, that we are Christ's inheritance, and he is ours. If God throw away his inheritance, why would he not throw me away? The Bible has a lot to say about the faithfulness of God and bolstering that faithfulness when we know the whole word of God, we need to know God and his character. He's absolutely faithful. So he's going to enter into judgment in this valley that started in reckoning in the scriptures because these wicked countries, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, they were defeated by the king of Jehoshaphat in this valley, and he's going to return there, and he's going to judge the nations of the world because of his people and account of his inheritance. Look at what he says now in the last part of this verse. Whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have also divided up my land. Now that's been going on for a long, long time. But we see it is continuing. And when we, <laughs> when we know that the land that was promised to Abraham extends from the Nile to the Euphrates, and if you, if, or, or some of your Bibles might say the river of Egypt. But if you look at from the Nile up to the Euphrates, you have, you have an area that the little Israel is right here, and you have a whole big area that God had promised to Abraham. Well, now, even now, as we get closer to these end times, we have the little sliver of Israel, no bigger than the state of New Jersey. And what is happening now? 
to bit so far peace. God says, I'm your peace to Israel. I am your peace. And yet we have secretaries of state in the past that we had, I won't name names, we have, we have, that are anti, well, actually, they're not only replacement people, but they're anti-Jewish. Just give them more. Give them more. Give them more. That's all they want. That is not all they want. They want to annihilate the Jews. They don't want a part of their land. They want all of their land. They'll go far to say that, no, God lied. God didn't give that. God gave his, his covenant his promise to Abraham's firstborn. And Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. That's true. But what did God promise? By Sarah and through Sarah, not Hagar, the seed will come. The blessing will come through Isaac, through Jacob, your heritage seed from your wife, Sarah. So the fight continues. They have parted the land they're trying to get rid of them, and God is angry. They have cast lots for my people, verse 3. They have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyrian city and all the coast of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. What a fallacy to think that men can fight against God. Verse 5 says, Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried it into your temples, my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem, you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. <coughs> anti Semitism. You could you could read things that will make you weep of how the world, the United States included, have turned away from Israel. How ships during, I believe it was the Roosevelt administration, was coming out carrying hundreds of Jews turned away. Every nation along the Atlantic turned away. The Jews were turned away. Uh, it, it's you know incredible. We have people now that are trying to diminish the Holocaust and so forth. Well, people don't know there was a Holocaust after the Holocaust. The people, the Jews that got released to survive the Holocaust, they went back to reclaim their land in Poland and so forth, their homes, and they were killed even trying to do that. There's a Holocaust after the Holocaust. It doesn't end. You want to remove them far from their borders? Is that happening? Yes. But God is also bringing them back. Look at verse 7. Behold, I will praise, oh, excuse me, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them. And will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters in the hand of the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the sea beans. To a people far off. The Lord has spoken. Now from verses 9 to 16, it's the day of the Lord in retrospect. In other words, we're going to go back but, you know, Joel is not in chronological order, but Joel puts it in such a way that if you understand the facet of this book, you get a well-rounded picture and there's of, of what's going to happen. Let's look at verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wow. Wake up, mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. 
Let the weak say, I'm strong. Assemble all you nations and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Now, we know from the prophets that in the, in the uh, millennia, it's going to be just the opposite. You take your swords and you put them into plowshares. You know, we're talking about preparing for war. God is angry, righteously angry. Verse 12, he said, let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We're back in verse 2 of this chapter. Let them wake up, and they're going to come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Here's where it gets interesting, folks. Look at verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for the wickedness is great. Now, before we go on to anything, keep your thumb there. Uh, if you want, turn to Revelation chapter 14. Now remember, we're still in the vernacular of, of the last days. He says that, I'm going to put in the sickle. The harvest is ripe for judgment. The winepress is full, the vats overflow, and the wickedness is great. Revelation chapter 14, look at, look at verse 14. We'll just read a few down to verse 20 real quick. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel, verse 17, came out of the temple which is in heaven, and also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had a power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust a sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it in the great, great winepress of the wrath of God. Verse 20, And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out, of the wine press up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Wow. So this is amazing. God is enacting vengeance, prepared for war. Verse 14, we'll go rapidly. I'm, I'm sorry, Cam, I, if you're if, if you're uncomfortable, please get up on okay. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The valley of decision, in retrospect, means that God is coming with a cutting edge. He is going to exact vengeance. He is going to exact righteous judgment. And many, many are in multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. The sun and the moon, again, verse 15, will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. Think about that. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. Again, his people is only used of the remnant of Israel, the spiritual seed of Abraham. 
And like I said, there is no question of this. You can trace it all through the word of God. He will utter his voice, again in verse 16, shake the nation or the earth, the heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel, so that you may know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall pass through her again. Let me just read you real quickly. In light of these things, look at this verse, 15 and 16, about the sun and the moon grow dark, and how the heavens and the earth will be shaken, and he will be a shelter for his people and the children of Israel. Remember we talked last week about the elect? We'll see this. But listen to this real quick. We read this before, but listen to this line of these verses. Immediately after tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one heaven to the other. Last week, what, are, what is this elect? There's people that say it's the church. No, it's not the church. We saw in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 6, if you're taking notes, we can see that, that we have that same vernacular of language talking about the four winds, talking about his people. We also see that same language back in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 9. We know from understanding that, that he will gather his elect together from the four winds from one end of the heaven. Because see, when the tribulation is happening and Jesus comes back, he's going to gather his elect. He's going to call his elect to him. A third, he's going to cleanse, he's going to chastise and bring them in. What a wonderment of the scriptures. Man. So back in, back in verse 16, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people. He will utter his voice from, from Jerusalem. I love it. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, simply says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come back and he will roar as a lion in judgment. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was the lamb of God that was slain for us. Praise the Lord. But as he comes back in judgment regarding his people Israel, he is a lion of the tribe of Judah. He's coming back with vengeance. He's not only on a, a rescue vengeance, he is going to exact judgment. And man, what a judgment that is going to be. People just don't understand. People that mess with the name of Armageddon or mess with these last days in these movies, they have no idea of the terror and the, the absolute judgment that is coming on the nations. Wow. Where are we in the prophetic timetable? Look to Israel. See the prophecies there. See what God's going to do with Israel. But look at verse 17, and we'll be done here real quick. So you shall know that I am the Lord. There's that, there's that phrase again. So you shall know that I am the Lord, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens or foreigners shall pass through her again. None. Jerusalem has been trod down by the Gentiles, Jesus said, continually, continually. And it will come to pass in that day, verse 18, again, in that day that the mountain shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water, a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water from the valley of Achaeus. 
Verse 19, Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of the violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land, but, verse 20, I love this, but. Oh, by the way, when we're talking about that river in, uh, in verse 18 and the, the, just the fullness and the vitality and the, the pouring forth of the sap and the juice and everything, we can also read in Ezekiel 47.1, uh, describing the temple in the millennial kingdom and the water gushing out. The Dead Sea is going to no longer be the Dead Sea, folks. The Dead Sea is going to be alive, teeming with life. Water is going to flow and it describes it beautifully. But listen, I also found this passage in Psalm 46, 5. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. You know, the Jews, again, are yet to have the greatest, as uh, Schofield says, their greatest exaltation. I love that phrase because that's the truth. So in verse 18, in that day it will come to pass. All this will happen. Wow. Look at verse 20. We'll end, we'll end in these last two verses. I know it's gone long. Thank you for being patient. I'm just excited. I'm just sorry that, that it took this long. But... Look at verse 20 again. But Judah shall abide forever. If you go back, even back as early as Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, what does God always say to Abraham? Forever. <clears throat> this covenant I've given you forever. Your blessing upon the people through Isaac and Jacob forever. The land I've promised you forever. Forever, but Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I have not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord dwells there. He promised way back that Jerusalem, he would set his name there, and the sacrifices would happen in Jerusalem. His name would be set there as a perpetual name forever. It's not going to be taken away. And we see the absolute fulfillment of that. So in retrospect, i got one minute here. We go all the way from the earliest understanding of the day of the Lord, from Israel's history, from their captivities, to the restoration of Ezra and Nehemiah, to the, the silence of between Malachi and the church age, Jesus coming on the scene, dying for the sins of the world, the church age, you know, at AD 70, the, the whole population of, of the Jewish nation being dispersed, just like God said it would, and then them coming back in the last days. We see Israel, the, one of the greatest miracles, I believe, of this century. Well, sure, it would be last century as well now. Is, is May 14th, 1948. Nobody thought it would happen. And, and May 15th, Egypt... And other, other allies attacked them. A day after they declared independence, they should not have lost them. Should have not. It was physically, it was mathematically impossible. And yet they did. And every war since, they have defeated their enemies. That was God. There has been reports that during the Six-Day War that missiles were, were miraculously uh, averted. And, and so on and so forth. And, and just miraculous things after miraculous things the Jews, and now if you look at, uh, they have proof from space, you start to see the land becoming green again, and they're now like, what, the fourth or fifth producer of, of flowers in the world. Um, we have a quote uh, from, I don't know if it's the exact date, 1870, something, I can't remember, from, 
uh, Mark Twain. He visited Bethlehem. He said, this is a horribly horrid place. A place fit for only for jackals. That place is becoming fruitful. It's, 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 God is bringing his plan to action. It is exciting because we are nearing, if we are nearing what's happening, uh, Jesus Christ coming back for you and I is so soon. <laughs> so soon. It's exciting. It's wonderful. Cam, you want to pray, please? Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. Consistently, we see your, your promises and your faithfulness to those promises. We thank you that they'll never fail. We thank you that uh, we are yours eternally mm. through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen.